if you want to have any success in environmental programming uh, or to achieve sustainability, you have to engage people and you have to address their basic needs. It's people first, environment at the same time. Hi, welcome back to the Cities Reimagined podcast. I'm your voice of choice, Johannes Riegler, and today's episode brings us to Africa. I'm having Paul Curry on the show. He is the director of the Urban Systems Unit at Ecle Africa, and I had a chance to swing by Ecle Africa's offices in Cape Town a couple of weeks ago to sit down with Paul and have this conversation. If you like what you're hearing on Cities Reimagined, I would be very happy if you would subscribe and rate the show on your podcasting platform, follow the show on Instagram, or even better, reach out to me on LinkedIn or via email, and that is uh, johannes at anthropocene.city. Africa as a continent is huge and it's also a continent of astonishing diversity and rapid urbanization and uh, the population is projected to double by 2050 and as such Africa is at the forefront of the global urbanization trend and while this remarkable growth presents huge opportunities it also presents the cities and urban areas with huge challenges So from the sprawling megacities like Lagos and Cairo to the picturesque coastal jam of Cape Town, African cities embody a kaleidoscope of cultures, traditions and urban landscapes. Yet they grapple with issues ranging from inequality, inadequate infrastructure, um, housing and environmental degradation. So I'm very happy that I had a chance to have this conversation with Paul because, in my opinion, issues related to African urbanism are highly underrepresented in the discourse on cities, at least in Europe. I could not imagine anybody better to have a conversation on urbanization across Africa than Paul as he's working for the African branch of ICLE. ICLE is the leading global network of cities and local governments committed to sustainable urban development with regional offices uh, across the world. And as I said already, Paul is working for the African one. The story how Paul and I met, or how we know each other, actually, um, starts on a bus in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa in 2019, I attended the African Climate Risk Conference in Addis Ababa together with Yunus Bulund, who you might know from another episode, from another previous episode. And um, yeah, on a bus ride during the conference, I was sitting next to Mary Thompson Hall, who is working for START, which is a US-based initiative uh, running programs to strengthen capacities for global environmental change science in Africa and Asia. So, yeah, we had a good conversation. After the bus ride, we continued talking and exchanging and began thinking about actually a workshop series to see how African urban realities match with European ambitions on 
urban transition. So that is in my capacity of uh, yeah working with the Driving Urban Transition Partnership. And at some point, the colleagues from START suggested to bring in Paul and Ikle Africa to organize these workshops together. So um, via Tennessee, where Mary is based, I got connected to Paul in Cape Town. And over the next months, we organized uh, three workshops on different topics related to making cities more livable and sustainable places in which I learned a lot about uh, urbanism and urban transformations in cities across Africa. And in fact, I only met Paul in person once um, after the workshops, um, as we both attended UN Habitats World Urban Forum in uh, Katowice, Poland in uh, 2022. So for me, it was not only a great personal pleasure to meet Paul again in Cape Town, but also I think this episode is a very rich one. Um, there's a lot to unpack and a lot to learn about urbanism in African cities. So that's it for the monologue this week. Here we go with the interview, with the talk ad with Paul Curie from Eclay Africa. Paul, hi. hi. Welcome to Cities Reimagined. Um, thanks for having me here in Cape Town. Yeah, Eclay most Africa's, welcome. Uh, office. It's amazing to be here. How are you doing? Yeah, fabulous. Uh, another day uh, in 2023. I cannot believe how fast the time is flying this year, um, but really exciting work underway. So nice to see it progress and nice to see the, the seeds that you've planted in the work kind of turn into um, outcomes and benefits for the cities yeah. we're working with. Nice. I'm very happy to have you on the show because I found uh, we worked together on, on a series on, on webinars a couple of mm -hmm. years ago almost now. Uh, Two, two years, two years? yeah, um, which I enjoyed a lot because it was about um, matching or discussing European priorities on sustainable city making uh, with African urban realities. I learned so much from these conversations, and it was was really good to to have them. Do you have some? Well, you know, for me, I think that's that's part of this really interesting work of trying to see how do these very lofty and big theoretical concepts land in different contexts. And if I can say anything about our work as African urbanists, we have this uh, great ability to contextualize and say, well, what is appropriate? How do we take these ideas like circular economy, a 15-minute city, uh, ask questions about what is an inclusive city? Mm -hmm. All of these big lines that we throw around so cavalierly, yeah. what does it actually mean? for yeah. a practitioner, for a resident on the ground. How will they walk out of their house? And this is a thievery from a city of Cape Town uh, colleague. How will they walk out of their home and say, ah, I am living in a resilient city. I am yeah. living in an inclusive city. And so the minute you take these theoretical concepts and actually ground them, uh, I think they become more rich. Yeah. I think there are... Uh, many exciting provocations that come out of that. Circular economy doesn't need to be this 12-principled thing. It can simply be about diverting organic waste from landfill to make compost out of it and use that for farming. And in the way you do that, you've made sure that waste isn't landing in drainage canals yeah. and causing flooding. So that's directly from uh, Accra. That's what circular economy means there. Yeah. We need to end flooding by getting our waste out yeah. of our infrastructures. Yeah. So. And Paul, you grew. We we are now right in the topic already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you grew up uh, in between New York City and Johannesburg. 
both very distinct and different cities. How did this experience shape you? And I saw on your on your LinkedIn profile that you said that you have an obsession with with cities or with urban areas. How did these two places and this this upbringing or this this experience shape you um, to what you're today or what you're focusing on your work today? Yeah. Well, look. I mean, the the, the communications team for New York City and around the world should be very proud of their positioning as New York as the city, mm -hmm. um, you know, with so many reference points, uh, thanks to pop culture. And also, uh, I was very lucky as a 14-year-old to suddenly have this opportunity to move uh, there. Uh, my parents got uh, work in the city. And what it meant for me was that I got freedom at age 14 in terms of being able to take the subway around, to walk around with a perception of safety, to access all of these amazing public amenities, uh, the parks, to walk along the, the river boardwalks, um, the whole set of free concerts and uh, discounted opportunities for students, uh, the fact that there was a subsidized metro card for students to be able to use public transport to get around. Uh, it meant that I had freedom when my contemporaries in, in South Africa were waiting for maybe 16 or 18 before they would get a car to be able to drive around without depending so much on parents. You know, and so reflecting on it now, it is a core way of how I understand cities and this tension between the availability of, of public, networked, robust infrastructure that's available to serve your, your needs and, and improve access to the city, uh, compared to uh, many South African cities in which access to the city is restricted for, for many, um, and, and certainly not a space in which young people or parents of young people want their uh, kids to be, to be moving through um, because of perceptions of, of unsafety. Um, and realities of unsafety. So that, that was uh, what, what made New York fabulous for me. And the fascination with cities is definitely based on this observation that cities are multi-layered. There are different types of infrastructure systems. There are different cultures. There's different languages. They really are the concentrators of so many different uh, uh, systems, people, uh, experiences, stories. Uh, and so where all of those come into a nice uh, mishmash is where, where I like to think and daydream and yeah, navigate. I find it so interesting that you describe it as that your, your, your obsession with cities, let's put it like this, came with this experience of being in New York City or just having this, this um, different experience of what urban, urban means. We had that on the, I discussed it with, with Jonas Bülund. I think we organized the, the web webinar series as well. Uh, and another colleague in a, in a conversation, and it came down to, he put it as anthology of where you see different, where you have different moments in your personal life. He pro pronounced it or mentioned it as shock moments. You come somewhere, you have a different perspective, uh, perspective or a different experience of in that case urbanism mm. you take it home and it all of a sudden it becomes very interesting and it shapes your perspective of what urbanism or what urban areas could be certainly you know and, and not just new york i mean of course being in other cities anytime you arrive you instantly get 
uh, a sense or you interpret the the character of that city based on how you interact with the space. And for some, I think that can be very abrasive in your initial uh, welcome into a city. But every city has its own character, its own sounds, its own uh, set of, of personalities. And so I think for me, what New York did was change a set of laden assumptions about what a city should or could be mm-hmm. um, from, for example, the Johannesburg uh, that I'd grown up in. Um, and there was a lot of soul searching on visits back to Johannesburg of, you know, well, why are people living here? What is it about this place that's attracting people and and uh, trying to think critically about, is this a place that I want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, which, which revealed a whole set of really interesting insights about, for example, it being... Uh, the largest artificial forest and a lot of investment in greenery, incredibly social uh, set of people, um, you know, and certainly very cosmopolitan in terms of uh, a whole set of people from around the continent arriving here to uh, to seek opportunity, um, you know. And so in that way, you know, a parallel between Johannesburg as a financial capital and, and New York as a financial capital uh, are, are quite telling. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so New York sort of, laid a uh, challenged a whole set of assumptions about what a city could be um, and watching it change while I was there was also mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful experience you now live in in Cape Town in South Africa um, why didn't you choose to uh, stay in the US why did you come back to South Africa and why Cape Town well much to the disbelief of many family friends we we weren't emigrating to the US we were going on an adventure with full intention to return and you know for me what was both wonderful and difficult about being in the US was that there were a whole set of politics going on which we didn't feel belonged to us. Uh, and so you could see the emergence of the Iraq war um, and a whole set of movements, uh, you know, and certainly while I was in university, the the increasing incidences of gun violence, you know, and you are participating in the society yet it's not necessarily your politics. Whereas in South Africa, I could see from an outside perspective of how much potential this country has and this yearning to participate in its politics and to help shape uh, the future of this country. Um, you know, and as a South African, there's a whole set of fraught identities and and uh, activities that you have to take on as a resident or a citizen, um, which ask deep questions about structural sh- changes, uh, about equity, about your contribution to a society, which... Um, can be very deflating at the one time, but also very empowering. Um, so, so I think that's this curious character, which I think many South Africans, in a way, are addicted to mm-hmm. uh, when when choosing or uh, when choosing to live here, but also uh, simply in the everyday being. Uh. Can you briefly explain what ICLE is and uh, the work you're doing? ICLE is a membership organization of local governments committed to sustainability. And our role is to represent the voices of subnational governments in regional, global uh, arenas. So when it comes to climate negotiations, how are we making sure that subnational voices are part of that conversation? When it comes to uh, a global movement around improving food security, how are we making sure that local government uh, have a say uh, in that? Um, because often the the understanding is that national governments are the negotiating power and the uh, policy setting uh, um, entity, but local governments and subnational governments are then required to do the implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
often without resources. And so really trying to to engage national governments as partners and say we need to take on multi-level governance approaches so that local governments aren't just expected to implement policies but are partners in designing those policies and are resourced to implement these uh, these policies and uh, programs. Right. And you're in ICLE, or in ICLE, Africa, I have to say, uh, you're the director of Urban Systems, right? Which... Sounds like you're dealing with a lot of complexity in your work. Is, <laughs> is that it? And uh, what gives you the drive and the ambition to, to challenge, let's say, the status quo of urbanism with, in all its complexity and messiness and so on? Yeah. So, so as, as noted from this New York experience, the enjoyment of how all of these systems layer and interact um, you know, gives me personal interest. Um, but it really is the crux of how you think about and try to intervene in, in African urbanization, um, which is that we have multiple systems in our cities uh, operating um, in concert or against each other. Um, and there is certainly a set of assumptions about which systems are uh, the correct form of the city. So to be simple about it, there's the planned city, which the politicians and technical officials in local government uh, think of, and that is designed, uh, drawn, shown in all the spatial frameworks and integrated development plans or equivalent. And they say one thing about how the city operates or is expected to operate. And then you have a whole set of other emergent activities, which are the real city, which uh, is designed and made by people. Um, and the way that cities emerge is absolutely through a whole set of different interests. And so when you look at these two cities, they may say very different things. In Dar es Salaam, while we were running a, a training engagement with uh, urban planners, one of them said, well, in the plans, so, well, in Dar es Salaam, we know we've got 300,000 motorbike taxis. We see them around, they're, they're hooting, they're carrying people, uh, they're parked on the sidewalks. Um, but if you look at the plans, there's no parking for them. Yeah. And so the plans suggest that these motorbike taxis don't exist. And so which one are you going to believe and which one yeah. are you going to count on to improve governance uh, or function of the city? Which is correct, you know, and, and I think people get caught in the sort of uh, one-way Uh, or the other kind of approach, but what does it look like to hybridize our understanding of cities and to try work out not to turn one system into the other. There's this whole narrative around formalizing informal systems, which frankly, when a practitioner comes and says, okay, well, how do we do that? What, what are we doing? Are we talking about taxation, planning, uh, regulation, uh, investment, uh, registration? You know, informal doesn't really have a, a clear policy response. Mm -hmm. And so we don't need to turn one system into another. We need to think about how we bring multiple urban systems into better alignment so that they're supporting the final outcome, which is good quality of life for the current residents and future generations. You know, if you break sustainability down into those sort of premises, um, it becomes quite a simple outcome um, with many, many uh, intervening policies, practices, infrastructures, Uh, cultures uh, to then navigate so from an academic perspective we can draw the system map and it's fascinating and it really excites us mm. to see how everything is interconnected yeah. from the practitioner perspective what do we do with that yeah. so what 
How do you intervene? How do you use resources efficiently to arrive at some form of change and improvement? Um, so that's that's what the role of this unit is, mm-hmm. is to look at the system and go, these are the interconnections we see. What do we do with this? How do we make improvements for the people in the cities? Nice. I would like to come back to the role of uh, informality in African urbanism or in African urban areas in a, a bit later because I find that very mm. very interesting, especially because a lot of uh, it has a different, a very different angle uh, compared to Europe and other parts of the world. I think, and I would be very interested to mm. to hear that from from you. But before we go into that, um, so the African continent is huge, right? It's spanning across climates. Uh, there's so many different cultures, uh, landscapes, populations, histories. Um, if you look at your work across Africa, um, and especially in this in this very very different settings, in this very different urban settings, spanning from Cairo to Lagos uh, to many smaller cities, capital cities, regional towns, um, and connected to the fact that African cities are very or more and more vulnerable to climate change, um, to the effects of climate change, and probably also the biodiversity crisis. And with the extreme weather events, uh, the number of extreme weather events rising, where do you see the biggest three challenges across African cities which require reimagining cities? Yeah. So, you know, due to the the histories of colonization independence post-independence um uh, realities and the fact that the continent is still you know often more integrated with uh global trade systems and global power systems than it is with neighboring countries it's a very fragmented uh country and so one of the things that many of us working on are trying to do is to build solidarity within countries and between countries and between ourselves as African agents um, and to really try and shift the narrative of where knowledge comes from, uh, who um, are the appropriate drivers of development, so to speak, or change or improvement, um, how to invite partnership and learning around the world, but also how to build more agency of Africans uh, to drive the change that they want to see. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a sort of uh, a knowledge context to lay, to lay a foundation of, of why doing this work can be so difficult is because of the fragmentation, the fact that it is uh, mm-hmm. or used to be cheaper to fly to Europe than it would be to another country mm-hmm. in this continent. So the three challenges that I would frame um, quickly and then going into more detail would be just the vast scale of infrastructure investment needed you know there's a a line and a quote or a stat that keeps going around of uh, 60% or now it's 80% of the built environment in african cities has yet to be laid thinking about our our population growth thinking about all of these mega trends which are affecting us so so the basic one is just we need a hell of a lot more infrastructure in order to service our people and make sure that basic services, if not quality services uh, and and secondary services, are provided. And this is all happening within a global reality of constraint. 
SDGs, reduce your climate, your carbon emissions, um, protect nature. And so there are a whole set of growth needs happening within constraints. But the vastness of that is just unimaginable for a single person or a single agent trying to drive that change. The second challenge then is is the collision of all these crises, climate crisis, biodiversity crisis, uh, environmental degradation, infrastructure failure, uh, inequity, lack of resources, uh, etc. And, and because of all of these pressures, we tend to have a rather pessimistic view and we tend to frame all of our development aspirations based on an issue or a problem statement. We've got this many malnourished people, therefore this is a route forward. And while these are, of course, really, really important pressures to be paying attention to and climate crisis next to urbanization is the biggest megatrend that's going to undermine our civilization and our society. But not letting that paradigm determine how you engage with the world is really important because if we keep talking about problems, that's all we're going to see. Um, And so the challenge of mindset towards solutions orientation, towards uh, a set of people who are operating joyfully and trying to drive change, and there are many of them, There are tons of people doing fabulous work in cities, in communities, um, at national political level around the continent. Um, But we tend not to focus on those types of successes. Uh, And particularly because everything is accelerating so fast in the world right now, we also need to be Mm -hmm. fast. Everything is urgent. And so it means that we can't celebrate these sort of small wins. We don't celebrate the small wins. And then the third one is also a mindset issue, which is that we don't view creativity uh, and learning as uh, central assets. We view them as nice-to-haves. You know, we view them as the icing on top. We view creativity as a way to make um, whatever we've worked on look better, feel better, sound better, where in fact it's, it's the vehicle towards a fundamental shift. And we need to center creative and again, another buzzword, innovative approaches um, as the way in which we'll reshape our cities. Um, If you come in with a, I'm going to patch that problem, Mm -hmm. you're going to get something stolen from some other context which may or may not work, which might feel okay. Whereas if we look at what our cities are, what they represent for us, and we think joyfully and creatively about what what we want them to do for us, you've already created a whole set of opportunities for uh, localized, Mm -hmm. context-relevant ideas to come. And are they going to look uh, like the other cities? Not necessarily, but who needs them to, as long as they serve the purpose that people think the cities need to have here. So those are my three challenges or provocations for for urban development. So um, that links so well what you just said, Paul, to a conversation I listened to uh, with your colleague Ingrid Krötze uh, in a podcast conversation on talking transformation um, and another podcast recently and I'm paraphrasing and she said in African city there's not much money uh, but there's a lot of action on transforming urban areas towards more livable, sustainable, more nature positive. Um, 
do you see that as well? Can you elaborate a little bit uh, about about this quote and what how you how you see that and uh, what futures in relation to climate and biodiversity and social justice do you see or envision uh, for African cities? And can you actually say that for for all African cities, or how would you how would you um, differentiate? So. While at once I can demand there to be more creativity in the way that we think about our cities, seeing these visions land is also quite difficult because we're so stuck in what we're seeing around. And so imagining something completely uh, different can be quite difficult. For me, the tension of what our cities should and could look like is drawn you know, is, is, is totally connected to the resources we have available to build them. And there's this tension, you know, that we mentioned earlier between this public amenity and public infrastructure that is built for everyone, you know, by a state or by mm -hmm. uh, someone with resources to service everyone. And because we don't have that many resources now, that we're kind of leaving that paradigm behind. And so it means that you're now counting on private, smaller private entities to invest here and there, um, which creates a big question about public benefit and public amenity. And are we not creating a whole set of splintered urban uh, spaces? Um, so when asking these questions about livable cities, nature-positive cities, that is absolutely a vision uh, that we need to promote and excite people about. But more than that, it needs to also have a, a point about how do we get there? Whose role is it to get us there? Um, and how do we mobilize resources to do so? Um, and I think there need to be stronger calls by governments and urban actors to drive resources towards these types of programming, um, which have at their out, uh, uh, as their outcome uh, public good and public amenity. Um, because all too often we see developments going and, and framing themselves as the smart city, the inclusive city, um, but only for neighborhood scale or something like that, and only for a select set of people. So that's the risk that we're seeing currently with the amount of resource available, is that there's some money to do something, but it's not for all. It's mm -hmm. not um, with that inclusive vision. Um, so that's my, my reflection mm -hmm. on it. Good and when we when we're zooming into into South Africa um, from the outside the stakes to transform urban areas seem very high there's the the rising sea level rise due to climate cri uh, climate emergency um, a water crisis energy crisis and we already said or you already mentioned that there's so much focus on crisis and and problems which might not be helpful but there's also a lot of of these very basic infrastructures and things to consider and to uh, to improve. Um, how would you describe the everyday life and the challenges of people in Cape Town and maybe also the, the positive angles to it, mm -hmm. uh, the, the creativity? What is there to where you where you are hopeful to overcome all these challenges and so on? Mm. So, I mean, South Africa is, is quite different from the rest of the continent uh, or the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, because there was a whole slew of public infrastructures that were developed. And so our, uh, you know, what's sad about the current situation is we've seen a whole set of infrastructure degradation due to uh, limited investment in the infrastructure. 
Um, and this is slightly different from other contexts uh, within South Africa or on the continent where we need new infrastructure full stop. Um, so obviously to maintain what exists, but really need a lot more. So the, the route for South Africa, in my mind, is quite simple. that We've got a whole set of distribution infrastructure networks already established, water, electricity, um, roads. And so here we, we get a little bit of insight into what could be possible in the rest of the continent in terms of having some informal systems or uh, uh, smaller systems. But really, you know, for us, it's investing in keeping this infrastructure functioning because we've already got the distribution systems. So let's let's keep that asset working well. Um, you know, the, the everyday life in Cape Town, you know, I mean, we're tangling with this curious question. Cape Town has been in crisis since... 2015 mm-hmm. first the water crisis uh coming out of that uh towards 2018 um then heading into covid lockdown uh government enforced lockdowns which uh completely drew out how how uh structural many of our problems are that we can't just band-aid them we can't just uh cover them up or address the symptoms uh and so really seeing different actors in the city deal with food crises, deal with um, the question of, of jobs and livelihoods and, and a huge amount of despair emerging through this, this loss of employment. Um, then uh, cost of living crises associated with the uh, war in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and uh, finally now a national electricity crisis. Mm-hmm. So living in this space, we've felt a whole set of different crises and it draws out this really tough question well how do you get on with your life how do you plan for the future how do you think about the future of the city and i think if we look at the positives we've got a set of people who are incredibly resilient and creative and able to come up with ways of supporting their communities and neighbors and so really interesting social systems have emerged to cover for all of the failures in in the technical infrastructure systems. Um, so I would say that that's our asset. However, there's a point where you, you can't uh, get stuck with the label of resilient. We may be a resilient people, and I know that our president has commented on this and celebrated this, um, but we shouldn't have to be. We need to head back to towards a sense of there being abundant opportunity, abundant resources. Um, because only in a paradigm where you have food available, where you've got energy available, where everyone is sheltered, everyone has access to work, can you start to get people to exercise creativity and uh, and push boundaries. Um, a lot of people say scarcity is, is what leads to innovation and new ideas. And to a degree, there's pressure put on by that. Um, but in a sense of abundance, you create an enabling environment for new types of business, new uh, uh, routes, which can be resourced. If you don't have the resources, any new idea can't take fruit, can't mm-hmm. fly. Um, and so capitalizing on a set of exceedingly creative people uh, in South Africa, I think, is really valuable. Um, uh, but they need to be resourced. So many, many African cities are also seeing a lot of population growth and a lot of uh, movement towards the cities, right? We, I think it's the, the highest on, on, the, on the planet at the moment, the speed and scale of how, 
how many people move to the cities. Um, given the challenges, would your would your efforts not be better spent to improve the living conditions and uh, on reducing the inequalities within and across African um, cities than focusing on sustainability and resilience mm. and so on? Yeah, so, so I mean, this is what's wonderful about ICLE is that every regional office has a whole set of contexts that it has to engage with. So, you know, we're local governments for sustainability, um, but it's up to each region to interpret what that means. And if you're going to do any form of environmental work or sustainability work in Africa, you have to start with people. Mm -hmm. You cannot, for example, in the Cape Town drought, put a broad messaging that people need to reduce their water consumption to below 50 liters when there are neighborhoods in which people only access 20 a day. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to have any success in environmental programming uh, or to achieve sustainability, you have to engage people and you have to address their basic needs. So how I've operated within the urban systems team tends to be with a bit of a, a quirky mantra, which is people first, environment at the same time. And what that suggests to me is that you're investing in people's agency and voice. You're investing in the resources that they have access to. You're investing in uh, giving them more time. What we forget so often is that if someone has to fetch food from the market every day um, because they don't have refrigeration or reliable refrigeration at home, um, if their lights aren't working at home, you've reduced the amount of time that they have available to be socially productive, uh, productive for work, to actually have their own time um, because people get so caught in looking after their own needs. If someone is caught in traffic for four hours going to work and coming back from work eight hours a day, when are they going to participate yeah. in recreation and connect with people? So you have to address basic services. You have to address uh, uh, people's voice and participation in making the city. But if you do this thoughtfully and cleverly, the resources you invest in that are also good for the environment. So the services that you're laying, the energy that you're producing, how can you count on environmentally regenerative types of technologies or processes for doing that? And that provocation requires you to then be creative about how you take sustainability messaging forward. Are you engaging communities around a specific type of renewable energy technology? Or are you engaging communities around getting energy and all the things that they can do with that, you know, uh, and and focusing on the service point. Obviously, if you are doing this cleverly, you are engaging with people and helping them to be champions of these types of uh, environmental programs. But it's also not necessarily their role or responsibility to do so. Yeah. And I think we burden a lot of communities, particularly the urban poor, with um, experiments and new types of practices which we think work um, And there are a whole set of mythologies around what an African city is supposed to be or it's okay to be, which I think needs uh, severe challenging. Um, simply because we go in with a, oh, we don't have the resources, so this composting toilet mm -hmm. is good enough. Um, mm -hmm. And so how are we making decisions about urban infrastructure with the communities who, who are Uh, beneficiaries of it or 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 demanding it mm -hmm. instead of going in right right up front and saying oh we don't have the resources here's something which something which else. might work yeah yeah wow um paul uh coming back to a point 
from earlier. I would I would be very interested in hearing more about the the role of informality um, in African cities. Well, informality is a misnomer, you know, because it's it's framed as being other than the formal, other than the correct. Uh, and who said so, right? And so we've interpreted a whole set of languages which dismiss the majority system in most of these spaces. And informality, we tend to be talking, you know, either around uh, settlements and people, you know, building their own homes, investing their own sweat and resources into creating shelter, um, and to talk about informal vending and trade and retail uh, and businesses. So uh, the informal economy and informal settlements, we, we tend to sort of lump into the sort of sense of, oh, informal. And and because we've inherited this language, we tend not to be overly critical of it and to think about, well, what are we actually trying to define? And the problem is that when you look at informal systems, you're, you're relying on intuition to define it, which often leads to these really negative terms like disruptive, in the way, uh, you know, criminal, illegal, uh, dirty, um, uh, not, uh, you know, disruptive or engaging, not engaging with our correct systems in the right way. And so you see this with a whole set of targeted accusations at uh, informal motorbike taxis, at uh, food vendors who are on the, the street side uh, and maybe encroaching into the road because there's not enough space for everyone. Um, and in informal settlements where uh, uh, there's demands for services but not necessarily space uh, to get emergency services in or to get infrastructure in. And so there's a sort of tension that emerges between the so-called formal system and the informal system. Um, and, and our sense is that we need a whole set of new terminologies to make us uh, engage with these systems uh, a bit more honestly and appropriately. Um, you know, because with this lack of vocabulary comes a lack of understanding, even though intuitively we can see mm -hmm. that informal systems are servicing yeah. the cities. And many official will be able to say, well, these are the things that they're offering or not. So how do you shift to a paradigm in which you are able to distinguish between people and groups who are doing illegal things, mm -hmm. you know, and causing harm versus uh, people who are putting themselves in danger, for example, for by building their homes in floodplains, mm -hmm. um, versus people who are offering valuable services and filling gaps in infrastructure. And so informal uh, vendors or, or people operating in informal economy are bridging a whole set of systems that are not functioning in an uh, inclusive manner. So how do you shift that paradigm to say, well, let's invest in this as opposed to demonizing. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of them is, is is yeah, and that point, as I said already, is is we've got to change the way we speak about yeah. informal. Across Africa, there are many highly inspiring and interesting ideas and visions and path-leading innovations being worked on and also implemented, which challenge the status quo and the, the way we do or, or people do urbanism in this region. What are two of... Two examples or two cases of recent years which you find particularly interesting. Mm. So there are so many, you know, small experiments. And I mean, the question is always how do you get these sort of built and spread? And, you know, if, if I'm thinking of things which have inspired me, 
um, one of the ideas around keeping the social fabric of, of cities working uh, is certainly through uh, the Friendship Bench project, mm-hmm. which is in Harare um, in Zimbabwe, um, where um, amazing individuals wanted to tackle uh, the question of mental health and provide space for people to to talk about uh, their challenges. Um, and because there's a taboo around uh, uh, being explicit or explicitly talking about mental health, uh, the idea was to uh, train uh, grandmothers um, who they suggest have a natural empathy um, in uh, basic mental health uh, care and guidance and uh, to then situate them on park benches and make them available for people to come and sit and talk to um, in a way that doesn't feel as formalized as sitting with a therapist, but creates a space for people to reflect and and navigate mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, uh, mental uh, um, issues. So if you're talking about urban spaces as often quite isolating uh, and challenging for people who come into their rhythms, uh, I think that's a really interesting social innovation. In Cape Town, um, a while back, there was an idea to um, do some informal settlement improvements, um, and this was done through the Violence Prevention Through Urban Upgrading Program in Monwabisi Park, and their entry point was in creating a set of uh, ICTs, information communication technologies, that would report on the state of water and sanitation infrastructure. So sensors on uh, the toilets to say if they were uh, still functioning, sensors on the taps to, to note if they were running. And by setting up this uh, mesh network, which was an affordable way to send information, they also created um, a basis for information sharing within the community and then expanded this to then be an intranet with resources that people living in this space could access, they could communicate. And although that was a really interesting route to start with information technology as a way of ensuring that uh, basic service provision was being met, but also enabling people to access job opportunities, uh, skills development, uh, communicate with their peers in an affordable manner. Uh, and I think that's really novel because we tend to start with uh, basic infrastructure. You know, are your basic needs shelter, water, energy? Okay, cool. And so here, prioritizing access to information and the ability to put your own ideas onto uh, an intra uh, web or an internet, um, I think is really interesting. Um, and then finally, you know, though though it's it's a it's a standard idea. I think it's important to note that getting the basics right is also worth celebrating. Mm-hmm. And so in Accra, there's uh, a champion uh, in the waste department who is adamant around improving the waste management system in Accra, in Ghana. And his interpretation of a circular economy is effectively that we're going to do things simply. We're going to separate the organic uh, waste and all the other recycled, all the other things that are able to be recycled. And if we can, as the city take charge of the organic waste, make sure that it's treated, turned into compost or biomethane um, for use in another function, then that's an element of circular economy. But by getting that separation right, 
we're making sure that the other recyclate is not contaminated by organic waste and that the informal mm-hmm. sector can do something with it, can collect it, treat it, repurpose it. Um, and if they get that right, it has then the uh, causal effects of stopping waste getting into the drainage canals and stopping the inordinate amount of flooding that's currently going on because the drainage system um, is is uh, under capacity. Uh, and so I thought that was just a really interesting yeah. articulation of circular economy in terms of that very specific context. And so getting that right feels very important to promote and support. Mm-hmm. Right. And Paul, where do you see urbanism in, in South Africa or in, in Africa uh, go from here? What futures in, in relation to climate and biodiversity and social justice do you see or envision for, for the continent? I see a lot of really exciting things emerge, um, mainly because cities are slow, uh, are slow things. They're slow geology, and so it takes a lot of energy to make changes in any of them. And while for us sometimes this the slowness feels frustrating, and we want to see change, there is a burgeoning of young urbanists of uh, people who who are pushing for new ways of engaging in our cities, and there is a much larger global appreciation of the importance of cities and local government, um, but also this much larger global acknowledgement of the importance and power of cities to drive uh, change uh, in countries. So my sense is that we're going to see more and more experiments emerge as more resources are put into, uh, so so to speak, future-proofing uh, cities. In Africa, the main priority is not on a decarbonization route. Um, that's a future uh, concern and something to be thinking about while we build the next cities. But it really is about adaptation. If we are not going to mm-hmm. meet the 1.5 degree uh, global increase in temperature, Africa needs to prepare for much higher uh, than average global temperature rises mm-hmm. and what that means for then our food systems, for uh, our, our coastal settlements. Um, so it's a sort of rather meso vision which is we we know that there are going to be a vast increase in severe storms flooding events droughts so how do we proactively take that knowledge uh and apply our creativity to it Uh, and i think there are a lot of people asking really really fabulous questions around how to do that Mm -hmm. um, and how to encourage resources to flow that way um paul before we close um do you have two or three recommendations for someone who wants to change anything in their city or in their urban area? Well, first, I can do a shameless punt to our platform called Rise Africa, which is about (laughs) inspiring action for sustainable cities. And it has a whole set of fabulous sessions and resources. It really um, does. That, that hopefully will inspire. Mm-hmm. And so the aim of it is very much to be a joyful platform for um, inspiring people to take action. Um, the second then I think is, is just in, in all the work you're doing, seek the collaborators. So seek the people who are going to uh, align with your energy um, and who can complement your work because trying to drive any form of change um, in a community, in a city, globally, uh, can feel very isolating. And so given that we've got these 
multi-pressures of the urgency of the need for change, the desire to be creative, and the desire to create space for the voices that are not mainstreamed in these conversations, um, you need allies to do that well. So um, that would be uh, the one there. And then something sort of pragmatic is any process that you start, think about how you're going to resource it. And so where are the resources available to drive that change? Can you uh, convince uh, different actors to to subsidize some of your work? Can you convince people to match funds? And how can you be creative around how you allocate or, or gain resources? And the reason I say this, and it might be a rather boring third piece, is if you start any process without a sense of where resources are going to come from, you risk the validity of that process falling flat. Mm. And so we're in a space where we need to be very thoughtful about the promises we make and the processes that we run so that they can actually see impact on the ground. The idea space is full. There are tons of fabulous ideas. It can always use more. But what people on the ground, what residents, what local government officials, what uh, community mobilizers and what private sector are all demanding now is... Yes, but what does it look like on the ground? Can we see it drive change? So having that orientation of turning the idea into something on the ground is really important. Mm -hmm. Paul, thank you so much uh, for having me here in in Cape Town at Eclay Africa's office. It's really a pleasure to talk to you again and to meet you again in person. I always talk to you. um, I always like talking to you uh, so much because there's so much knowledge about African urbanism, but also you have so much, uh, personally, so much knowledge on, on urban systems and urban complexities and so on. And I I learned a lot also from the time when we worked together on, on this webinar series. I hope we have a chance to meet again soon, maybe at World Urban Forum next year, since it's in Surely. Africa. I, I really hope so. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for the provocative questions and uh, hope they stand as some inspiration for others. That's it for today's show. If you want to find out more about uh, Paul's work in Eclair Africa, do you find the links in the show notes. Um, I hope you liked the episode. If you did, I would be very happy if you would rate the show and if you subscribe to the channel and follow the show on Instagram or get connected to me via LinkedIn or email. Thank you so much and I hope to catch you soon.